I use that gospel to preach, uh, that verse to preach the gospel to myself. There's no sin I can commit to make God stop loving me because he loved me at my worst while I was still a sinner. And there's no good deed to make him love me anymore since he gave me the greatest gift while I was still a sinner, his only son to die for me. How could he love me more than that? So good. So I've slipped my favourite in. But I said we preachers should model how God speaks freshly today as we keep reading his word. We discover bits in the Bible we never noticed much before. Or maybe God speaks with fresh power through a familiar old chapter that comes alive in our current context. What better time than COVID-19 to model that truth in a time of fear and anxiety, of turmoil and constant change, Scripture sustains us. How he did it for me was by this Psalm 147. My notebook tells me it was my reading on March 31. That was just after we'd gone into lockdown, two weeks into cobbling together this live stream service and wondering how on earth we'd do Easter. I was working crazy hours, not knowing what was coming next, but I read this and I thought, God's in control. In particular, God spoke to me through verses 10 and 11. I know that because I actually hand wrote those verses into my notebook. Here's how they read. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Now, I've never been a soldier in the cavalry, any kind of soldier actually, but those words jumped off the page. And later that morning, I selected the same psalm as the reading for the new COVID Zoom prayer meetings we'd just started. In the notes I distributed after, here's my summary. I was especially challenged by verses 4 and 5, which tells us of God's greatness in power and knowledge in numbering the stars a million billion galaxies worth and by verses 10 and 11 that reminded me that God does not delight in a pastor's technological cleverness or the strength of his keyboard use any more than in military strength or equipment. Instead he delights in those who fear him and hope in his unfailing love. And I've kept going back to Psalm 147 through coronavirus And I want to unpack it with you because it has two themes running through it. God in creation, God in the gathering business. Creation, gathering. And these themes kind of intertwine. He moves from one to the other and back and forth. And together they tell us big things of God. So we'll take them one at a time. And firstly, God in creation. You see it, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. It's amazing how often the Bible writers go back to star grazing. Modern telescopes also produce amazing images which can now go alongside your Facebook photographer friend's night sky shots. The immensity of outer space is awe-inspiring. But the fact of the millions of galaxies has made some philosophers think humans are just 
way too small to notice, just insignificant blips on a cosmic radar. But the psalm writer thinks, if God has power and intelligence sufficient to set stars spinning through space, well, he's more than capable of handling our problems. If he can cope with issues of quantum mechanics and thermodynamics, he's more than capable of delivering a design plan for our lives. In his commentary on the Psalms, from verse 5 here, William Plumer writes of God, There is none above him, none with him, none like him, in power or in any of his perfections. To the mind of God, no subject is knotty, no truth mysterious. Friends, all that cosmic computing power and galactic strength is at God's disposal when he considers whatever problem keeps you awake at nights. Indeed, verses 8 and 9 remind us of God's basic nature as creator. He's a giver of good gifts. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. And so there's attention to the big picture water cycle and to the tiny details of feeding baby birds. Now, in a fallen world, that provision is not all we experience. There are droughts and miscarriages. But God himself, his basic nature is to be a provider. Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15 say he makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. And then the author cycles back to nature, to creation a third time, verse 15. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles who can withstand his icy blast. He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. I think the added thought here is don't muck around with this creator. And he illustrates it by the various kinds of precipitation, including a storm that strips trees bare, hailstones we'd say as big as golf balls. Maybe if he rewrote the psalm in Australia today, he'd talk of bushfires. Better smartphones we have now mean we've seen close-up footage of fires more terrifying than ever before and some even experienced it including some watching on the live stream. We just had a holiday at Batemans Bay and the scale of how much was burnt out, it's enormous, almost continuous just south of Nara, and we got as far as beyond Mogo. Now, there's lots of soft green eucalypt shoots, but in some places the fire was so intense that only black tree stumps are left standing like matchsticks, no, no regrowth at all. To look at the immensity of the stars and to think 
we're too small for God to care about is a case of misunderstanding. But to look at the intensity of the power of God in nature and to think, oh, we can ignore him, well, that would be a case of false teaching or perhaps idolatry of worshipping a a tame God of our own imagining. But remember, verse 11 says, God delights in those who fear him. And so that's God in creation according to this psalm. But number 147 also reveals a God in the gathering business. Right from the start, verse 1, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. See how God wants to gather his people together and comfort them so they can sing so they can rejoice with him how relevant that is in these socially distant times unable to gather freely as a church and 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 then when the few of us come told we can't sing verse 3 says the original context was israel's exile Israel had been divided as a nation their kings kicked off the throne their populations defeated and even deported first by the Assyrians to the north and then the Babylonians to the east and it happened because of sin their idolatry and indifference to God their personal disobedience their social injustice even after multiple warnings from the prophets no doubt some individuals were better or worse but it's just different degrees of sinful. They were all guilty and they were in exile. But God wasn't finished with them. His judgment was real. But his end plan was to gather, not scatter. With God, there's rescue for refugees. And verses 12 to 14 suggest the psalm was probably written around or maybe just after the days of Nehemiah. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. It was Nehemiah who led the rebuilding of the walls and gates of Jerusalem. And it was Nehemiah who'd encouraged the Persian king Artaxerxes in his policy of religious freedom that allowed the Jews to return home and protected them from local intolerance. But Israel was weak, no cavalry. It happened not by military might, but by fearing the Lord. Now, For Christians, we know that speaking theologically, it was the life of Jesus that ends spiritual exile. Sin is what exiles us from God. And Jesus' perfect life dealt with sin and its consequences. He used his power only 
ever to serve. And he taught the truth of God without compromise, even when it cost him safety. But it was especially his sacrificial death for sin that ends the exile. Though it was not deserved, on the cross, in his perfect humanity, Jesus felt forsaken by God, being cut off from the Father's pleasure as he bore the penalty deserved by our sin. And so Jesus completed a kind of spiritual exile as a substitute, not just for fallen Israel, but for all sinners of any race who turn and trust in him. Now, there's a sense in which while we remain in this world, we are still in a kind of exile, that is, as citizens of heaven, we don't quite belong. We're like foreigners, non-citizens in a world, at least when it stands against God. But we know that God's in the gathering business. And every time someone becomes a Christian, God's gathering that person into the body of Christ. And turning to trust Christ now and coming to church is just preparing us for the greater gathering in heaven, around the throne of God. This is just a little entree for the banquet feast when we'll see God face to face. And the last thing I notice from this psalm is that it all just happens by God sending his word. Look again at verse 15. He sends his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. God's word is like Usain Bolt at his record-breaking best, unstoppable, unbeatable. That's the power of the word. Verse 17 again, how does God melt that snow or frost or hail? By sending a word. This really echoes for me Genesis 1 where God made the world and said, let there be light and there was light. Just like that. God spoke his word of command and it was so. You know, behind all the diversity of nature, of creation, there is a single intelligence who speaks and makes it turn out exactly as he wants. But God's word is not just a word of creation, it's also a word of revelation and of gathering. Verse 19, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. And that's the climax of the psalm. God revealed himself to a specific people, Israel, or Jacob as he was before God changed his name. Uh, He made Jacob's sons fathers of the 12 tribes that became Israel the nation. To them he gave the Ten Commands and his moral law. In it he revealed the sacrificial system and the temple plans where he would focus his presence on earth. 
in it he gave them instructions about their earthly kings and then to them he gave the prophetic promises of an ultimate Messiah king to come, a servant king who'd suffer to end the exile before entering his glory. God's word is full of instruction and hope. It's possible verse 20 could sound proud. <laughs> God revealed his plans to us and not you. But verse 6 already told us that God sustains the humble. So being proud that God especially revealed his plans to Israel could hardly be the point of verse 20. I suspect it has more to do with reminding them of their responsibility to share what they've discovered of God's revelation. That is, to be a light to the nations. A bit like we speak of being disciples of Jesus, shining as lights in the city here. Indeed, you know when I read verse 15, that God's word runs swiftly, I immediately thought of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul literally asked the Christians to pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured as happened among you. We know God's word runs swiftly but we're to pray that it runs swiftly in our town because we know God continues to be in the gathering business. Yeah. How does this progress happen? Doesn't seem easy, does it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That was the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4 and verse 6. And I think it's a great summary of the vibe of Psalm 147. Any progress we make in the Christian life, in the Christian church, is not by might or power, but by his spirit helping us trust the word of a loving Lord. Come back to Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. Like I said, I'm no soldier, let alone a cavalry man. But I am a runner and I'm tempted to take pride in my legs, even though Karen says they're skinny. I can, outrate, I can outrun the mates that I run with, mostly. And more to the point, I'm a hard worker in ministry. I hope it's okay to say that because I've got plenty of shortcomings as a pastor but God seems to have blessed me with a decent motor for ministry and, and a thick skin to go with it. And I'm really pleased, really pleased with just how well we did adapt to taking St Michael's online to the live stream and the Zoom meeting so quickly when coronavirus shut us down. Big thanks to Jeff and Ed and, and the staff and others. You know, while I was away on holidays, uh, I looked at quite a lot of other churches and their online offerings and I'm really pleased with the choices we made and the quality of what we do. But these verses have reminded me that real spiritual progress won't be by a church's technological cleverness or the strength of a pastor's keyboard or smartphone use. 
nor by our plain old hard or smart work. That can't defeat coronavirus or Zoom fatigue. Friends, any success comes only because people fear the Lord and hope in his unfailing love. Only that delights God. And how will Christians endure worsening situations, say, with religious freedom? You could imagine Christians in Hong Kong perhaps worrying about that right now. Or even here if it tightens up. Only if we trust in God's unfailing love. Fearing the loving God more than whatever opposes us or causes us problems is what gives us real strength. And how good it will be to be able to get together again and praise him together in song. But until then, friends, make sure you be singing his praises at home or in the car. Personally, I would just apply this psalm a little further by asking you to prize the fact that God has spoken to you personally. He's reached out to you. Really, God's word whispers your name. Prize the fact that somewhere along the line, he caused someone to talk to you about Jesus. Prize the fact that he has given you new birth by his word. Prize the fact that his word is still open and so easily available to you. And God wants to speak to you today and every day. Don't miss that chance. Don't take it casually. Look, friends, I've struggled to have consistent daily quiet times of personal Bible reading and praying since I got serious with God as a teenager. I've only had a few times in my life when it's really gone that well for a while and it's always been a struggle. Only in the last four years, since my last long service leave actually, has it really been regular and richer. And I'm a minister. And on the cemetery side of the semi-century. Friends, that just tells you don't give up. God wants to speak to you. Keep trying. And when you fail, try again because God still speaks to us. But we do need to open it up and be reading it, consuming it often.